more than any examples I can think of, of like times in which I felt rejected, even though that happens, like those don't feel as formative to me as these really like rich experiences of being so loved and, and also giving that. And I think it's like the search for that and, and opening up to receive that also is scary and dangerous. And, and so I think that it comes back to the potential for the beauty of it that like has to go hand in hand with the danger of it. Hi, welcome to Undefined. I am Marissa Tashman, your host, as you probably know, unless you're new to the podcast, which welcome, very happy you're listening. Today, I am very excited to share my interview with one of my closest friends, Sarah Krinsky, who is a rabbi at a synagogue in Washington, D.C. called Addis. And she graduated from the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City a few years ago. And her and her husband, Daniel, live in the D.C. area right now. And one thing I think is so cool is that her synagogue is one of the largest, it might be the largest in D.C., at least the largest conservative synagogue. And she gives sermons to Supreme Court justices, which as a lawyer, that would, I'm just like totally starstruck when I see Sarah, because I'm like, the Supreme Court justices are listening to everything you have to say and all of your wisdom. And I'm just very excited to share some of her wisdom with all of you guys, because she has a lot of it. We talk about feeling the energy shift post-election and how it's been for her just like living in D.C. throughout this whole period. We recorded this, I think it was three weeks ago. So it was right after the three Wednesdays in in a row in January, you know, with the inauguration and everything happening in D.C. around that time. So we talk a little bit about that at the beginning. We also just talk about generally shifts she's experienced during the pandemic, a lot about collective trauma since she leads a congregation and there's obviously collective trauma just nationally that we've experienced, but leading a community during the pandemic and connecting with her congregation over that collective trauma. We talk about how she has to move between sacred spaces, like for example, she might be teaching a preschool class and then all of a sudden has to prepare for a funeral. We also talk about the Jewish practice of Musar, which I have a link to in the show notes. And it's sort of like a template to move through a process of self-reflection and learning how to use all of your traits to show up for good. Knowing Knowing who we are versus changing who we are is a topic that we talk about, the desire to be accepted, holding space and entering into someone else's trauma, which is like a huge part of Sarah's job. We also just talk about discovering yourself and opening yourself up in partnership. And she talks a little bit about her marriage um, with Daniel and I love them as a couple. So there's definitely some wisdom there that hopefully, you know, you all can glean from this episode and generally just like getting comfortable with uncertainty and letting go of control. And also because Sarah's a rabbi, there's a conversation at the end of the episode about the concept of divinity and source and how Sarah thinks about those things. Generally, I just love, I mean, I love Sarah like so much and I just love her whole approach to 
religion, really, and spirituality. And she's funny. She's so brilliantly smart and articulate and kind. And she just has the warmest heart. And she just is like the embodiment of love. So I think that you guys will feel that. And I'm just, I really, really can't wait to share it with you all. So happy listening. And just an update on my end. I am in Portland for the next six weeks. Actually, I guess five and a half weeks now. I got here last Sunday night and I'm enjoying the trees. It's a little rainy right now, but not surprising, but it's still very green. And the moss is just this like, I feel like moss produces its own light which probably makes me sound crazy, but it's just this bright green that's everywhere, like on the sidewalk, on the steps, obviously on the trees, and I'm loving it. I'm staying near a gorgeous park and have been walking or running every day, and it's just amazing. So I don't know many people here, so if you're listening and you happen to be in Portland, you can be my friend, or if you aren't in Portland but know people in Portland, feel free to connect me. So anyway, I will talk to you all at the end, and thanks for listening, open to feedback, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so excited to finally have this happen. This is amazing. I'm really nervous, but I'm excited too. Oh my gosh, no need to be nervous. This is going to be just like, you know, our conversations when we were 12. Perfect. Hopefully a little <laughs> bit more developed than that. Just like for anyone else's sake. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So how are you doing? Um, I'm pretty good. Um, this has been a really, I mean, it's been an intense few weeks for everyone everywhere. Um, but I, I, I mean, you know this, but I moved to DC two and a half years ago. And this is the first time where I've really felt like there was a specific energy or a specific way of experiencing what was happening in the world being here Um, and it was just a really intense few weeks to be here and I feel like last Wednesday both turning over a new leaf like opening a new chapter for the country but even just the day progressing without violence like some of the movement restrictions have now been lifted and the national guard that was thank god here but truly occupying the city has started to disperse and it I feel like the city is breathing again and it just feels like relief everywhere. Yeah, I mean it was crazy. It was like three Wednesdays in a row. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you felt that like the energy shift each week. Yeah. And it and it it was it, they were different energies and you're right, you could feel the shift, but I think the thing that I felt the most was like the adrenaline never had a chance to abate. Like it was just like thing after thing. And so I felt like my body on high alert just for so many weeks. And that's the thing that feels like it's finally kind of ebbing a little. And that's sort of like not just the past three weeks, but like the past four years. Yeah, exactly. Like I feel like we've been going through this collective trauma of just like, you know, the news is like every day something horrible is being reported yeah Daniel last night was like and anything do you know anything that happened with Biden today I was like no and like
like I want I'm I'm still gonna be informed and all of those things but like to not have it be the thing that's most front of mind at every Uh moment especially after these few weeks was like okay there's a little space for the, all the other parts of my life to kind of reemerge. Yeah. And I love that, like, the New York Times started to report on his, like, watch. Yeah. Like, Rolex. And then yes. Peloton. It's like, okay, this is what's news now. I was living for the Peloton stories. There were these amazing Twitter threads that were trying to guess what his Peloton name was. It was like, oh this is the content that, that America needs. I hope that he does, like, some, like, class oh of course and then they were trying to guess his favorite instructors I was like this is a really niche little conversation right now but I am the niche so here we oh go God, imagine if Cody was his favorite I, I mean it, it's not impossible I feel like maybe that's the case I really hope that's the case <laughs> yeah it's a good image <laughs> like pumped up when he's riding <laughs> but he, he like does the Britney ride whenever he's had a tough day <laughs> Anyway, back to collective trauma. No, sure, sure. Natural transition. (laughs) So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and for everyone listening, and I'm sure, I mean, I'll mention this in the intro also, but Sarah's a rabbi at a very large synagogue in DC. And part of your job is to kind of like help people move through this time and to help people process all of this trauma. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure year especially besides just being remote and it's obviously harder to do your job over zoom you know than in person and to inspire people over zoom than in person but like how how have you felt that shift like within work and like how have you changed you know how you talk to people or what things have come up with that yeah you know it's interesting I think that most of the time the way that I have experienced that is still kind of individually with people like we're all kind of floating in these same tumultuous waters but experiencing it a little bit differently and so I do feel like when I'm sort of in the moments with people it still is like what's happening for you in this moment and the collective is just kind of the buildup of all of the individuals I would say like the thing about that that has probably felt the most different for me is that most of the time when I'm when I'm sort of journeying with someone through something, it's their trauma that I'm kind of entering into with them. Um, But in these past, you know, not just few months anymore, like this past year, it's like, we're all in it. Like I'm in it too. And that's the thing that has felt the most different in terms of not my role, but in terms of like what it's like for me to still be with someone. And I think, you know, I, I go back and forth. Like I really, try to be like my most whole authentic self when I'm with people. And so I don't just see, you know, talking to people as this like detached thing that I'm doing from outside of myself. Um, And I I know that in this job, like it's not about my, it's not about my trauma. Like I have my own therapist for that. (laughs) And so like finding the balance between connecting with people over what they're experiencing, but still making sure that, that being there with them or for them like sort of keeping that front of mind is what my purpose is in any particular conversation. Um, I will say that the the other thing that's coming to mind is just that community and ritual and like sense of shared time and being part of a shared story, like all that has just felt that much more important now that if we're, if we're going through a collective trauma for there to be um, 
like a collective space in which to go through that or, or sort of like ways to move through it. And that's, I think, what ritual and religious community can do. And so we've been sort of playing around and thinking and, and feeling um, that out as we move through this. Yeah, so I guess two things. Um, one is, have you found it easier to like more intimately relate to people because you're also going through this trauma? of the world or is it sort of similar as before? Um, that's a good question. I think probably some of both. I mean, I do still think that, you know, it's like, we're again, like we're all kind of experiencing the same thing, but it impacts us all so differently, not just because of our circumstances, but also sort of because of our constitutions, like because of who each person is. Um, and I really feel like I'm with people at that level of particularity that the specifics of their life does make this thing that is impacting both of us, like feel really different for them. So, so I think it's probably some of both. And then just talking about building community. I mean, that is so hard in this environment. Like, what have you found, you know, I'm sure that you found things don't work too, but what have you found does work and like how has the response been from from the community yeah so I think at the beginning of COVID I thought like okay the stuff that we're doing online it's not going to get anyone new but for the people that are sort of already with us and this is already like the place that they turn we'll be able to kind of maintain status quo for long enough um Mm -hmm. and I've actually been really surprised at the way in which we have been able to build breadth and depth like reach more people and also really in a in a serious way kind of meet people's needs and and build community and I think it's probably a few things the first thing that I'm noticing everywhere is I think this time and you and I have talked about this like this time has been one of spiritual reckoning for a lot of people in a lot of different ways like we're confronting really scary things and really serious things and um I think people are really searching for a place to wonder about that. Um, And that's a lot of how I see us as like a place to ask those questions and to explore different answers, but really just to kind of be in the wondering and exploration together. And so I I have felt a real deep yearning um, that means that our job is to meet that demand rather than create it. And that's just a really, it's a different posture than what we're used to doing. Um, Right. So, so that's part of it. And then I think the things that, the things that we have found that work the best for us, which should not be surprising, and I think have always kind of been our guiding principles, but, but all the more so now, is like when we're just us, (laughs) like when we're not trying to be more or do more than than who we are and and what we're feeling. So like on high holidays um, in September, that was the the first time that we were able to construct our sanctuary in a way that more than one of us could be in there together at the same time to lead services. And so the whole clergy team or, or most of our clergy team, like you said, it's um, I work at a big synagogue. And so we have lots of clergy, lots of rabbis and cantors um, and musicians that lead together. And, and you like turned it into a recording studio, essentially. Right? Yeah, it, it, it is a soundstage. <laughs> um, and, and so on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, that was the first time that we were all able to be together. And, 
you know, obviously there was so much loss, like being in this room that, you know, should have had thousands of people in it and had 10 of us like behind plexiglass screens. There was something so painful and real about that. And like the joy that we all had with being together, even in this super bizarre way, I think that really came across. And we were just like, you know, after the live stream cut out and we're kind of reflecting, I was like, we kind of were just hanging out in a room together for the last eight hours and (laughs) inviting people to do that along with us. And, you know, there were times in which I was nervous that that we were going too far in that direction. Like we really were just hanging out. Um, But I think the feedback we got was like that sort of real human interaction, us like being our most open, vulnerable, you know, flawed whole selves like people really they like we all want that and we're kind of drawn to it and so I think that 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 which we do you know the high holidays were kind of the most extreme example of it but I think we try to do versions of that all the time like that invites people to come in and to do that too and I think that's been that has always been our biggest community building tool and that's when it's been able to transcend in this time also Yeah, that's so interesting. And you mentioned how everybody is, and I know that we have talked about this, everyone's sort of being confronted with their own spirituality and what that means to them. And like, how how have you been confronted with that? Like, what questions are you grappling with? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I, I think in some ways, I feel like a lot of what people in my life have been thinking about are things that I think about more often. Um, Like I, I do funerals a lot as part of my work. And so I feel like all of the time I'm thinking about mortality and the meaning of life and, and questions like that. Like, you know, it's kind of interesting doing funerals because you'll be going about a regular week and I'm like teaching in the preschool and I'm writing a sermon for Shabbat. And then someone dies and it just reorients the whole week. And so the movement between that kind of level of sacred and the kind of mundane of the rest of my work life, like those, I move back and forth between those spaces a lot. Um, and, and, and funerals always just sort of reawaken all of those big questions. And I feel like other, other like friends and other people in my life have been thinking about mortality and, and like what it means to live a good life in different ways. And so um, I think just being in those conversations with them, like I'm, I'm grappling with it too. And now I feel like I have more partners to think about it with. Um, and then I guess the other, the other kind of thing happening in my spiritual life, um, which had been building for a few years, but I know we've talked about this a little bit, but there's this Jewish practice called Musar, um, which is a kind of, like template or plan for how to move through a process of self-reflection and self-examination and like think about who you are in the world. And I've been really drawn to Musar in this year of shutdown. And I've like led a Musar class um, for members of my community and I've been progressing in my own practice and I've given some sermons about it. So I just, I find myself returning to it over and over again, which usually is a sign that there's more, there's more to do there for me. So can you like kind of walk me through what that process looks like? Yeah. So like with an example, you know, something that you've sort of like used it for recently. Yeah, totally. Um, so 
It's goal. The goal of Musar is the Hebrew word is shlemut, which is wholeness, like the word shalom, which we translate as peace usually, but it means wholeness. Um, oh, and that. yeah, and and the way that that word is used here is the shlemut, the wholeness is like the alignment of your mind and your heart and your actions, and mm-hmm. that's something you know. I think I I live really deeply in all those spaces. Like I really I love like the inner workings of the mind and I, I think a lot and I read a lot um, and my heart is like probably overactive like I feel probably too much <laughs> um, and but like those those parts of myself have often felt like they're sort of separate and so part of what Musar does is try to join those and then align that with like who you actually present as in the world and so the way that it does it which is awesome is it um, the curriculum is divided up into these things called midot, which are traits. So things like patience or humility or generosity or courage or truthfulness. And every week or every other week, you focus on a different trait. And there's like some text study. And then there you create a mantra for yourself. And there's journaling. Um, and then you find these little ways to sort of proactively exercise the trait out in your life. And mm-hmm. I think I'll, I'll give you an example in a second, but I think like the the thing about the practice that speaks to me the most, I mean, the first is it's very organized and regimented, <laughs> which <laughs> I appreciate like that yes. is that's who I am. And so I need like a plan, like, okay, like on Monday you do this on Tuesday, like, my <laughs> spiritual life needs like a Google calendar. <laughs> um, and this does that. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, the kind of revelation of Musar is that the goal of it isn't to change who we are. It's to know who we are and then to see like how we can best orient our natural selection of traits to do right. good in the world. And so like and the whole idea, no, that's go ahead. Such a, like important distinction to know who we are versus to change who we are. Cause I think we're fed so much information or I guess like that just like, what we're fed in the world is to change, like mm-hmm. to become someone different, to become someone better. Even like New Year's resolutions sort of are around that. Yeah. So, like that's such an important distinction. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was like an amazing revelation. I actually, I kind of got into it because, or like an example of it um, that comes not from the Musa world was I was doing this like strengths finders quiz mm-hmm. and it said this was in a time in life when I was really trying to work on like being more spontaneous and and less sticking to a plan. And I did the strengths finders quiz, and it was like your number one strength is your organization and planning, and then your number two strength is your ability to love and be loved. And I, like one of the other things that I sort of thought I should have been working on was like being less dependent on other people's affirmation and validation. I'm just, sure like when you saw the results, you were like, fuck. <laughs> yes. But I also, I mean, I, it actually was like a really transformational moment. So it's like these things in myself that I've been trying to move away from, yeah. they just, that is who I am. And they, That's- they have the potential to be my weaknesses. Like that is true, but they also have the potential to be my strengths. Like the example oh. in Musar, which is hilarious, is it's like, take someone with a murderous instinct instinct and tell them to become a kosher butcher, (laughs) 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 which I think is so true. Like my murderous instinct is like, I want everyone around me to love me all the time. And that is like a really hard thing for me, but then to be like, like, sacrifice your yourself and your own needs. 
else. Right, exactly. And so it's it's not to say that this is not a thing that I'm working on, but like the idea of Musar is like, this is who you are. And how do you recognize when you're out in the world, like what triggers this trait to be an overdrive? What triggers it to be an underdrive? Like the goal is to have these natural traits of yours to be in equilibrium all the time. Um, and, and so that just as a concept felt so opening to me. Like I am who I am. And the more I know that, um, the more I can like show up for good rather than for bad. Like the the whole thing is like, it's not about that you are good or bad or that these traits are good or bad. It's like, how do you use your traits to show up for good? Totally. Like one thing that, I mean, I know that we've talked about and that I've struggled with for many years is just knowing who I am, Mm -hmm. like how to even learn what makes me me, you Mm -hmm. know, what are those traits that make me me? And of course, like over the past year or so, I've like done a lot of growing in the area, but how, like, what if you don't even know where to start? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is like by having these set weeks to explore these things, you do like, there's so much reflection and you're supposed to journal every night, which I never do, but <laughs> like, that's, that's the goal. Um, and there is a lot of like, oh, I didn't actually, so humility, for example, the way that they understand humility is like how much space you take up. And so again, like it's not that humility is good or bad, but it's when are you taking up too much space and when are you not taking up enough space? And Mm -hmm. as in those weeks, I really was just so much more conscious of like, how much am I speaking here? How much am I dominating or holding myself back? And um, so I think just having that like regimented order of going through them kind of forces you to notice it. But the other thing, and this is a trait I'm working on right now. So this has yeah, been a, ask you what you're working on right so now. So this has been such a productive one for me. So the trait is um, emet is a word in Hebrew. It's true truthiness, like truth telling, mm-hmm. truthfulness, like um, transparency, like with yeah. others and with yourself. Yes, exactly. And it's, I mean, on the surface level, which honestly, like, I have so much work to do at the surface level that I haven't even gone to its deeper place. But yeah. its surface level is literally like when do you say things that are true and when do you say things that are not true? And the whole idea is like to use the times in which you're inclined to lie or it's so interesting. They talk about not like the opposite of truth telling isn't just lying. They have these four categories like cynicism, uh, flattery, slandering, and lying. Yeah, and it's all like to be accepted. Exactly, exactly. Right, so I think like, Probably for you, your the times in which you deviate from truth, it's out of a desire to be accepted. Like I think that's probably mine too. But the idea is you look at when it is that you don't tell the truth and then you examine like what was actually the fear that was underwriting this moment leading me away from the truth. And that's like how you discover where your work is. So I've just been, it's been like. Yeah, so what has come up for you with that? Like I, I already know, like for me, it would be like, the fear of not being loved. Yeah. Or, yeah. No, that, I mean, that's 100% what it is for me too. Like part of what I notice as I go through this work is like, I'm actually a pretty simple, <laughs> like my psyche is not that complicated. Like you want people to like you, like congratulations on that really complex psyche you have. <laughs> um, no, but it's totally that. It's like, you know, I've, I've been noticing that I often will say things that are sort of like adjacent to what I actually think, but are oriented toward what I think this person wants to hear. Totally. Um, and I've really, it's like, 
I hadn't known how much work there was for me to do here, but in these, I've been, I've been, this trait has taken more time for me. So I've been in it for a few weeks. Like I've really pushed myself to not just respond with the truth, but like when I'm feeling something that's hard to articulate it. And, you know, it, I was, I've like been so nervous. Like there's some conversations that I've had, like with my sister and with Daniel and with people at work that I had noticed had kind of been bubbling for a while. But like before I was this committed to the truth, I was like too scared to bring them up. And it's so amazing because once for me, at least once I've said those things, it's like the holes that they had on me, it just releases. It's kind of like like the Wizard of Oz, like you realize it was just like a boogeyman or something like this thing that had felt so scary, because I built it up in my mind as this really hard and impossible thing. Like it just, it like releases, it releases its power over me as I say it. And so that's been like, so hard and also so liberating. And how has like the response been from whoever you're having that hard conversation with? Yeah, they they still like me, it turns out. (laughs) Isn't it so amazing how we just build these narratives in our minds about how people's perceptions of us will change? Yeah, I think it's it's probably like like ultimately just self-centered. It's like people don't actually think about me as much as I think they think about me. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And I don't know if you've explored this aspect of it at all, but where do you think that like desire to be loved and accepted stems from besides just the general, you know, human desire to be accepted as like a member of the human community. Mm -hmm. But do, do you see it like, you know, in your parents or something in your childhood? Mm -hmm. That's, that's interesting. I have therapy tomorrow, so I can maybe let you know more (laughs) then. Um, I mean, I, I think it actually does sort of come back to, the fact that like that actually is one of my greatest strengths, I think, mm-hmm. is is the capacity to love and be loved. Like, I just feel like my heart is wide open and that's a really hard thing, but I also wouldn't trade that. And so I think like the examples that I can think of in my life or sort of in my formative years, like <laughs> my dad always used to say to me when I was a kid, he was like, there are 6 billion people in the world and none of them are more loved than you are. And I think, like, I really believed that and probably still do. I mean, like, maybe it's like a worldwide tie. (laughs) Um, But I think that more than any examples I can think of, of, like, times in which I felt rejected, even though that happens, like, those don't feel as formative to me as these really, like, rich experiences of being so loved and, and also giving that. And I think it's, like, the search for that and, and opening up to receive that also is scary and dangerous. And, and so I think like it comes back to the potential for the beauty of it that like has to go hand in hand with the danger of it. Didn't your dad also used to say, I love you more than life itself? Oh yeah. My whole family says that. Now we text yeah. it L-Y-M-T-L-I. <laughs> I remember that. Like, time, I, was, I love that so much. When I, when I was like so young, you know, and I would go and sleep at your house. I remember your dad saying that to you before you went to sleep. And I remember thinking about it like, wow, like that is like, I mean, of course, like I knew my parents, you know, loved me in the same way, but I just remember thinking about those words and like how it was articulated and it was so, it felt so powerful. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. Well, 
<laughs> Obviously, I'm going to cry. I mean, it's like a day, so. <laughs> Speaking of crying, you know, mm. I cried um, on Wednesday night or Tuesday night mm-hmm. for the first time since the election. Wow. Were you watching the COVID memorial? No, I just was feeling sad and then started journaling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cried. <laughs> like everyone in my life makes fun of me. I think I'm, without exaggeration, I cry almost every day. <laughs> That's good, though. I mean, I feel like you're very connected to your own emotions. And like what you said, like your heart is open. Yeah, it, it, it it's an, a, a sometimes inconvenient reality. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think probably what you're saying, like, that's kind of like the adrenaline that I was talking about. Like mm. we, and that's, that's what I was asking. If you watch the COVID memorial, I found it so powerful. Cause it. I, I think that what it did was it, it gave, it, it gave us communally a space to grieve. Like I think mm. people have been grieving on their own and in, in their own communities, but to say nationally, like this is a moment where you can actually, you don't have to have all those hardened shells around you like just let yourself feel what we've all been holding and it was amazing I have to watch it how do you how do you when I mean you have to like hold so much space like you were talking about how you sort of enter into someone else's trauma Mm -hmm. and you move through it with them so how do you release that from from your own body and from like your own heart Um, I think it's just having, like, the things that I know ground me. Like, I, I have so many people that I love who provide those spaces of release. And, like, I know I've, like, joked about therapy, but, like, I actually do take care of myself in that way, too. Like, have spaces in which, like, my own experience and emotions get primacy. And I think that that balance... I, I need that balance. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, my sister and I always talk about how this is kind of back to us, like being very simple creatures. It's like, we know exactly what it takes for us to have a good day. It's like, be outside, take a long walk, listen to a podcast, work out, take a shower, paint our nails. Like these are not hard things. And I do know myself well enough to know that those are the things that restore me. And I do think one of the things that I'm good at is like making room for those things and so like going outside and taking a walk will like snap me out of whatever I'm in and um and and so I I I have like things like that that I can turn to that are kind of like time tested enough that that I usually know they'll work Hmm. interesting I mean I kind of feel the same and I didn't used to always be like that like Mm -hmm. especially with work like I would just I wouldn't allow myself to take a break because there's all this guilt that comes from like taking care of yourself. Almost, yeah. Yeah. Is, it's like so backwards because you can't, even if you want to be able to give and to open your heart to others and to help people like you have to take care of yourself because otherwise you won't be able to do that. Right. Like there, there would be nothing left to give from. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can I tell uh, you a story about that? Oh, for sure. Please. <laughs> okay. So this is a story that I think about like probably like two to three times a week. And I think this is one of the most, it's like silly and also formative moments of my life, which was in college. I was the president of Hillel, which is hilarious that I like 
thought I used to think that I didn't think I was going to become a rabbi. And I look <laughs> at my life and like, I basically was like on the most straight path toward it forever. But okay. I like volunteered to go to extra Hebrew school as a kid. I was like, please, I want more. <laughs> so in college, obviously, I was the president of our Hillel. And, um, and, yeah, and we had signed up to like all the faith based student orgs had signed up to make sandwiches for this homeless shelter like we would each take a day over the course of a month or something and our day like came and went at like 11 45 the place called and they're like where are sandwiches and we're like oh my god we definitely forgot about this and I was supposed to go to class and there were like three of us that all had whatever noon classes or something and we all like didn't go to class and we just frantically made like 300 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and it prompted this like existential crisis for me where I was like okay these two hours instead of going to class I made 70 sandwiches now take those two hours and multiply it by four years that I'm spending in this institution and like take the thousands, like hundreds of thousands of dollars going toward tuition. And what if I just made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for four straight years? Like how many more people would have lunch? And I like, this was a not, this was, it, it's like very funny in retrospect that I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to like make peanut butter sandwiches to $200,000 worth over four years. But it was so I, I just, it was so hard in the moment. I was like, how could I do, how can I justify to myself doing anything other than like providing people with food? Like right. what is more important than that or more basic than that? And so I talked, I went to the, up to the office of the rabbi at Hillel and I was like, help, I'm on the verge of quitting school and donating like the leftovers of my bought mitzvah money to Costco peanut butter tubs, like save me from myself. And again, um, like on the road of becoming a rabbi, you go to the rabbi. I know. I know with I, life questions. I know exactly. I think about that so much now. <laughs> like silly Sarah, you knew nothing about yourself. <laughs> um, but one of the things, you know, he kind of talked me down in, in a number of different ways. And, and one of the pieces of it is he was like, you are so nourished by what you do here in school. And like, you can't spend your whole life only like learning for the sake of your own edification and your own enjoyment and making no sandwiches. But if all you did was make sandwiches, like you would become a shell of yourself. And like the world doesn't need more shells of themselves, yeah. right? I mean, the world also does need sandwiches. And so he, it's like, but it, it's that balance that I think totally. I, I try to tap into a lot. When have you felt like you, this is going to sound super dark, but, but when have you felt that you are sort of like on the verge of becoming a shell and then you have to like recognize that and like walk it back? Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah no, I definitely do. I mean, I think that both in like personal and professional life, there are just these, there are just these like stories or people that I think kind of enter my heart in a different way than others like mm -hmm. people going through something and it's like hard to predict exactly what it is but sometimes something just gets like it's like it like nestles and like colonizes <laughs> in me mm -hmm. and I just become really probably like overly invested in it yeah. and I I mean I think like I don't think that I've ever kind of pushed that too far like something always pulls me out of it mm -hmm. um but I can definitely I can 
even like conjure up the feeling of feeling like I'm edging toward like too much, living too much in this other person's story. Ultimately, I think the danger is like, it, it comes to serve my own needs, right? Like it becomes about like, I like to feel wanted and like I'm helpful and, mm-hmm. and those things. And that actually isn't serving the other person at all. Right, because maybe they're becoming too reliant on you. Yeah, and like my reason for doing it becomes about myself, not about yeah. them, which is like exactly backward. Interesting. How That's like such an interesting thing to think about. Like are things, is the reason ever completely dissociated from our own selves? Oh, for sure not. I mean, anybody that goes into a helping profession, like – feels a pathological need to be helpful all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I guess like maybe the, the goal is to find those places of alignment where like serving your own needs and serving someone else's needs would lead you to the same place. Right. And then I think really the most important thing is to be in really active reflection about it all the time. Like that's why like having spaces that are, that are about you or, or colleagues to process this with like, when we, got, when we finished rabbinical school, we had this one teacher who said, if you listen to nothing that I've said to you for five years, listen to this. Like, have someone in your life who is a therapist or a professional coach or someone whose job it is to help you discern why it is that you're doing the things that you're doing. Because that's, right, that's, again, the moose I think of, like, the thing that we're best at and the thing that we love the most has the potential to be really harmful. and. Right. We have like the only way to stay on the right side of the line is to be reflective. So who is that for you? I mean, I think that I sort of know the answer. I'm sure there are multiple people, but I'd love to to hear. Yeah, I think there there are a lot of examples. Like some of it is the professional, like the professionals that I pay. Like <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, right, this is like a big ad for therapy, which I'm I'm okay with. <laughs> I mean, um, I I love my therapist. She's yeah. <laughs> I, I I always call her my friend, and Daniel's like, mm, I don't know what I about that. I'm like, I'm gonna have so much to talk with my friend about tomorrow. It's like, we should really talk about that, really. <laughs> um, and then and then I also like I have I'm in my role is I'm the assistant rabbi at the synagogue I work at, and um, I have two senior rabbis who are like just the world's greatest humans and greatest clergy members, and. So they're a really, like, safe and active space for that. Um, And then my relationships both with Daniel, my husband, and Hannah, my sister, like, those are people who just know every facet of me and who I can, like, talk, like, sort of going back to honesty, like, there's never anything other than my fullest me with them. And so I feel like, and, and Daniel is also a rabbi, which kind of gives that added level of like yeah because he gets like what you go through every day exactly and he's similarly like on the lookout for these same things in his own life and so we can be each other's accountability partners in a really natural way so I mean I I love like you and Daniel as a couple and (laughs) (laughs) well we love you and as a we as a couple love you we as a single person (laughs) And I remember one thing that you told me, I think this was like when I first started dating again, and you were basically like, you know, you're not going to, because I had this idea in my mind of like, when I meet the right person, I'm just going to like know instantly that like they're the person. Yeah. No, like 
that's not necessarily true. And that's sort of like a, you know, unfair standard to hold yourself to. Yeah. So when you and Daniel got together, like, how did you discover that you could fully be you? And that like, he was seeing you for your full self? Yeah, well, I do think part of it is that we were friends first, like we got to know each other at school. um, And we did develop a really strong friendship before we started dating. But you know, the other thing I was just talking to my sister about this the other day. So we've been together for over seven years now. And I was saying to Hannah, I was like, yeah, I think maybe like a year or two ago, like I like Daniel and I finally knew each other. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but like, I do feel like it just, I don't know. I feel like it like takes, it both takes a really long time to both fully discover someone else. And also like for me to fully open myself. Like yeah. I, I feel like I'm a really open person. So I don't think that I'm like actively shielding parts of myself. I don't really do that with anyone um but I think there were just parts of me that I didn't even like know about right that that he was able to that we're kind of able to uncover together but like it took a really long time and I think those parts of me didn't fully exist like he brought them he brought them out of me and so I think part of it is like we it took us a long time to learn each other and we were becoming ourselves in different ways because of each other and I know. I mean, yeah, I really like, I, I feel like probably like five, six years. That was when I was like, okay, yeah, I think, I think, I think, you know me. I think I know you. <laughs> Actually, we, 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 we joke sometimes like whenever we go on a hike and we're somewhere that's kind of isolated, I'm like, you could murder me right now. <laughs> He's like, why would I do that? I was like, I mean, I, I don't think you will, but it is this thing where it's like, I think it, it it is funny and it's also like my neuroses and anxieties for sure. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> no, obviously, like who thinks that their husband of five years is a murderer? Like nobody <laughs> except for me. But I think the like deeper truth that I actually am tapping into, which is a which is a real kind of fear, is like, I don't know, like you can you ever fully know another person? Like I think I know him and I think he knows me and, and I you know, I, I don't actually believe he's a murderer. But I think like <laughs> what I what I'm bumping up against is there is some limit at which right. like you just can't be fully inside of another person's heart and mind. And, and like like that limit sort of mirrors the fact that we can't even be fully inside of our own heart. Oh mind. yeah, that's because so true. We don't I mean, we're evolving, right? So to fully know yourself in a sense would mean that you are not evolving anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, so true. always just like unknown, which is the beauty of just like being a human, right? Yeah. Yeah. I used to think that I wish I could like see a vision of oh exactly God. how my life would play out. Same. I still you, think about that. In well, some do, you, do you still want that? Well, not like with everything, but I mean, I mentioned this to my therapist last week and I was like, I wish I could just see like how this one situation would play out. Like I wish I could get like a sneak peek at the end and then like come back to where I am. Mm-hmm. I know. It's like when you like go and read the last page of a book and you're like, oh, okay, they don't die. Yes, now exactly. I can, now I can read the rest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I also like often feel that way for some reason. 
like being 40 to me is like the age at which like your life is set as it's going to be set. So for like forever, I've been like, I just want to see a little glimpse into what I'm like at 40. And then I can rewind back to whatever age I'm at now. I I wonder how I'll feel when I'm 40. I'll probably be like, I don't know anything about anything. I know. (laughs) I mean, we're like 30 now. I know. And we don't know anything about anything. Yeah. And I think about, you know, when I was like, 13 and 30 seems so old I know it's really scary but I do think I think the thing that that COVID has most kind of not most but one of the things that COVID has most shown me is like we never actually had any certainty about anything right nothing was ever a guarantee but I think that a lot of us like myself included had fallen into this illusion of of certainty or of like if we do these things and this outcome will come control yeah control yeah and as someone who is very control oriented (laughs) like there's something that's that's both so scary but also has been a little bit liberating of like we don't actually know anything and and that the sort of humility in that has actually grounded me more than unsettled me which is surprising to me yeah I mean it's like the certainty of the uncertainty yeah yeah, and, and, and again, it's like the true thing. It's like when, when I can just name that and and acknowledge it, then it loses it loses some of its kind of outsized yeah, power. Totally. And the other comforting thing about that is like we're all in the same boat. It's not yeah. like, you know, twenty percent of humans like know everything that's gonna happen and are able to control it, and then like the eighty percent are just like floating around aimlessly. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and it's like I don't actually my my job isn't actually to fill in all those gaps of the things that I don't know, right? Like the project isn't know everything with certainty. It just becomes like, how do I have the strength and resilience and support systems so that when the inevitable uncertainty rears its head, I'll be able to make it through it. And that is to me just such a richer life project than like control every outcome. Totally. I mean, I talk about this like all the time and I know that we've talked about it and I'm sure some people listening are going to laugh, but it's like working through the process of whatever we're being confronted with Mm -hmm. is that's what life is. Yeah. Those are the experiences that make up our life. And without that, you know, things would be like probably pretty boring. Yeah. In, In college, somebody gave me a mantra for finals week, which is the only way out is through. And I made this really angsty like background for my like desktop or whatever that was like all black and in green letters. It said the only way out is through and it was actually like kind of creepy. (laughs) But but I do, I think the part of it that I come back to a lot is just what you said. It's like moving through like that is the stuff. Like that is the stuff of life. Yeah. Like not even, like not even being out. Yeah. It's like the process of moving through. And yeah, yeah, I mean, without that, it's like there just would be no growth. No. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about before we go on to my fun quick fire questions (laughs) is just this concept of, and I feel like, you know, I would like, I have to talk to you about this since you're a rabbi. But this concept of God or source or higher power, like Mm -hmm. being inside of all of us, Mm -hmm. how do you think about that? Yeah. So I guess the first thing is 
I think the word God has really complicated associations for a lot of people, like the English word. Like when I teach an intro Judaism class at the synagogue I work at and the session on God, I always start by saying, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And most people give some version of like a man in the sky that knows all our deeds and like has full control over the world and is intervening in history. And I also don't believe in that God. Um, and, and I think that being able to say like, there are conceptions of divinity that are outside of what, what we sort of think about when we hear the English word God, right. like that's really opening. It has been for me too. And I guess, um, and so, and so in English, I, I usually use the word divinity because it feels, I think it feels easier to access. Like this was a moment that felt full of divinity. And, mm-hmm. and by that, I usually mean like awe, touching, a, a, touching something that's bigger than us, like usually bigger in terms of time. Like the, the, the moments in which I feel divinity are often moments where I'm reminded of our smallness, like the smallness yeah. of our life and story sort of in, in the cosmos. Totally. Um, and then there's a conception of, of divinity in Judaism that's like the spark between people. And, and I feel like I can really touch that. Like I, that, that also sort of feels like there's something that kind of transcends, I don't know, transcends like reason in, yeah, in, like in the connection. connection. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that, that point about smallness, mm-hmm. that's, I totally feel that. Like when, when I am in nature or if I'm looking at the stars or even just like the sky and the daylight, yeah. that you, you realize like we're, you know, just on this like floating ball in the middle of this massive universe. Yeah. And sometimes that smallness can feel scary, but recently it's made me feel more connected in like sort of a backwards way yeah no I totally agree and I actually think kind of going back to where we started with like building community and COVID and all of that I think one of the things that I have found religion to do so powerfully and that I hear reflected in other people is to connect us to a story that's bigger than this moment like I think that's so much of what Jewish rituals at least do like the very first Shabbat, the very first Friday night of when when the synagogue was shut down and like the world was shutting down, um, Dan, Dan and I were like sitting on our porch eating lentil soup. And <laughs> I first had this moment of like, is this like one of the biggest things to happen in history? Or am I sitting on my porch eating lentil soup? And like the clash between those things was just so intense. But I think <laughs> I think the moment that that kind of grounded me through it was we said Kiddush, which is the blessing over the wine or the grape juice Friday night and it invokes like the creation of the world and it invokes the exodus from Egypt and I was just thinking about like all of the times throughout time and space in which people have said these words yeah and it just made it made this moment feel feel small in a way that like you said was so comforting it was like the human story so much bigger than me on my balcony on this Friday in March um and yeah there's like a a humility to it that I find really comforting. Do you feel like you connect with divinity through prayer a lot? Or like, um, how do you mostly connect with it? Yeah, through prayer, but I think um, probably in a, not in so much a literal way. Like it's, it's very rarely the words of the prayer book necessarily 
mm-hmm. that can take me outside of myself. I do think part of it is um, that like the Sidor, like the, the Jewish prayer book that we've kind of inherited, like it feels like this kind of evolutionarily crafted manual of resistance, uh, mm-hmm. of resilience. Yeah. Like, like these are the things that over thousands of years, other people have thought like this gives me comfort and inspiration and challenge and space and all of these things. And so it feels like, you know, we are inheriting this thing that's like for thousands of years, people have been fine tuning to be as precise and manual of resilience as possible. And so there's something both in kind of the big themes, like, you know, the, the morning prayer service, it moves from themes of light to love to redemption. And Mm. that's almost always a journey that I can find myself in somewhere. And so I think it's that same, like, my journey of light or my experience right now of love or my quest right now for redemption, like those are part of those journeys on a cosmic level or like on a level that has existed for so many years. Like that sense of me being a part of a whole Mm -hmm. is really like the, I, I find divinity in that. And then I think it's also like those moments of, of singing and crying your heart out with other people that are doing the same thing. And that's, that's been much harder to access in COVID. But I do think, think those moments of losing myself and like touching something that transcends me and my body and my experience, but that's part of something bigger that usually happens through singing together or mourning together or celebrating together. um, I I call all of that divinity. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you're right. That's, that's what's been like lost during yeah. the time. And that's like part of everyone's pain is like feeling that loss. It's like grieving for it. Almost. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I have my ending quick fire questions. Okay. I'm very excited to hear your answers too. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. The first one, what book are you reading right now? And if it's multiple books, you can say multiple. Okay. Well, I actually just last night finished the book I was reading, which was a visit from the goon squad, which I'm late to, but was so good. Um, so I have to pick what to read next, but I have been my 2021 pledge as I'm only reading things, um, written by women. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's not limiting at all because they're like (laughs) a billion incredible female writers. Um, and I've also next on your list. Well, I have like five that I'm picking between, but I, I'm only vibing with fiction right now and kind of the wilder fiction, the better, because I think I need like I need to enter into a different universe than ours when I read. So I have some like magic books or um, something like that. (laughs) Princess Diaries. I mean, (laughs) ever far from my life. (laughs) Meg Cabot all the way. (laughs) (laughs) What was the last meal you had? Um, so for breakfast this morning, I ate a leftover pretzel. We made homemade pretzels on Friday and they were so good on Friday. And now they're like kind of sad and soggy, but a sad, soggy pretzel is still really good. Like you made big ones like that are jelly? Yeah, big soft pretzels. Yeah. Yum. That sounds so good. Yeah. They're so good. When you imagine your happy place, where is it? It is the camp that I grew up at. That's in Malibu. Um, that I spent like the better part of 20 years of summers at. And it's in, it, it burned down um, in one of the fires in California a few years ago. And yeah, so, so the, yeah, so it, it now is a happy place that exists only in my imagination. Um, but there's something about that that actually still 
feels like even more live and resonant for me. So I, I go there all the time. And it's your pre-wedding party spot. Exactly. I'm so grateful that the people in my life all got to spend time there and like yeah. see the power that it holds. So cool. Yeah. If you could speak to yourself 15 years ago with the knowledge you have now, what would you say? <laughs> I might say, see that girl sitting next to you. She's going to be interviewing you for a podcast. <laughs> and we'd be like, what's a podcast? <laughs> I was um, thinking when I asked you this question, I was thinking like the fact that I knew you. I know. Just imagine that's like on the field in our skirts. Like what would I needed to know in that moment? I know. I had like that, that image of us with our skirts and the sweatpants underneath (laughs) and then the uniform skirts like rolled down because we've had the same skirt since like seventh grade and like clearly grew. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I think my actual answer to that is everything that you go through will be temporary. Like the good things and the bad things, like all, like any, the, that's like the moments that feel like they're most intense and all consuming that those will all pass. That's like such important knowledge. And I wish I could tell myself that like a year ago. Like I have to tell my 15 minutes ago self that all the time. Maybe if I had 15 years of practice, it would sink in more. Right. (laughs) Okay. My last one is, so obviously this podcast is called undefined. But curious what definitions you feel are true to you. Okay, so I knew that you were asking this, obviously, because I'm an avid, undefined listener. (laughs) But I really promised myself that I was going to try to not think of an answer and see what just naturally came to mind. So I I am trying to do that. Um, I I think coming off this conversation, I'm realizing that, like, a lover like I don't mean that in like a like promiscuous (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure but like I just think that is how I move through the world like I love and so that that's feeling very real you do it's like I mean I even feel it now like I feel your open-heartedness oh I love that (laughs) (laughs) oh my god thank you so much Sarah Oh, thanks for doing this. This is so fun. I loved it. I love it too. I mean, I think all the time about like, just to go back to us on the field, like, it's just amazing. You know, if it took me and Daniel five years to get to know each other, then we have like 15 years on him. But I just feel like you, it's a, it's a, it's been really like humbling and an honor to watch our friendship evolve over all these years and to see the ways in which like, you know, the things that brought us together as kids, like those will always have a pull on us, but we've been able to just grow into our full selves together. And I just like that wasn't a given and it's like really beautiful. Yeah. And even like how, you know, we get on Zoom now and it's like, we didn't, even though we live in different cities, like we didn't used to do that as often. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of agree. You know, well, so, I love you, and I think that we're going on a Zoom tonight, so I'll see you in a few we hours. Are. We are. <laughs> Hello again. Welcome back to myself. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny, but I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sarah Krinsky, one of my closest friends. We went to middle school and high school together, so we have known each other since we were 12, and I'm sure you probably could tell in the episode while you were listening that there's just a closeness between us that's really special. 
So I hope you enjoyed it. I will put everything you need to know in the show notes. And please rate, review, subscribe, download all of the things. I really, really appreciate all of you listening. I also have a Patreon, which I mentioned in my last episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can subscribe to the Patreon. And I actually donate the money to an organization that I feel passionately about. So I'm donating the money right now to the Equal Justice Initiative. So if you're excited about their work, it's like has to do with criminal justice, then donate to the Patreon. And or you can just donate to them directly. But you know, if you want to support the pod, go through my avenue, which I would really appreciate. But also no pressure. And I just appreciate you listening. So thank you again. And I will see you or talk to you, I guess all in a couple weeks.